You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Prejudice. Hello again, my radio friends. Thank you for joining me today for more from God's Word, the Bible. Firstly today, a short story. My sister June was a true blue Aussie. As such, she was not keen on some of the new practices that immigrants to this country brought with them. She was especially wary about some of the new foods and anything radically different to the traditional Australian diet was rejected. June had never tried yoghurt and my wife who was used to yoghurt suggested several times that at June should at least taste it. The day came when June agreed to have a little taste of unsweetened plain yoghurt. Ever so slowly she scooped up about half a teaspoon of it and then lifted it up to her mouth. The next action was like a mini volcano erupting because almost before the taste buds in her tongue could sense the new taste, she spat the yoghurt out, spraying it all over the kitchen. That was the first and last time June had anything to do with yoghurt. Custard would remain good enough for her from then on. Was the yoghurt bad? No. It was perfectly good. But June had already made up her mind before tasting the yoghurt that she wouldn't like it. In other words, she was prejudiced. Prejudice can be a terrible thing. It can harm relationships. It can close the mind to new ideas. It can prevent people from knowing truth. And it can trap people into a mindset of negativity and mediocrity. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were strongly prejudiced. I suspect it was because they were fearful that Jesus would upset their beliefs, their security and their social status. In the Gospel of John, chapter 8, is recorded the interaction between Jesus and a group of Jews on one particular occasion. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, Ah, we Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, that whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. 
They answered and said to him, Nah, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And that's from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 41. There are a number of issues being dealt with in these verses. The first is about freedom. The second is about what one does and how it reflects on allegiance, and in this case, lineage. And the third is about prejudice. And I want to focus today mainly on this third aspect. You see, the Jews were challenged by Jesus and by what he taught, so much so that they wanted to get rid of him, to bump him off, to kill him. Jesus knew it, and he told them so. So infuriated were these holier-than-thou Jews who prided themselves in keeping the commandments that they were prepared to break the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, because they were afraid Jesus was undermining their traditions and economy. If someone's prejudice is so set that they would want to kill someone else who does not conform to their way of thinking, they're in a really bad way. Jesus pointed out to the Jews that although they claimed Abraham as the father of their nation, what they were doing and planning was in contradiction to what Abraham would have done. In verse 39, you will have noticed the Jews claimed that their father was Abraham, but they were becoming rattled because Jesus' logic was so much superior to their own. And then they said in verse 41, Ah, we have one father, God. Now, have you ever noticed what happens when there is a conflict And what happens when one party in that conflict realises that their line of argument is not watertight? One strategy is to appeal to a third party, like saying, so-and-so agrees with me. Another strategy is to bring in another line of argument and shift the debate away from what it was. A third strategy is to resort to insults and name-calling. And there is a fourth strategy, and that is to resort to violence, to silence the other party. And these strategies are usually consequential. One follows the other. If you're ever involved in in an argument, and the other party starts to call you names or tries to insult you, don't do the same back to them. The argument is lost for the person who resorts to insults and name-calling. You will have won.
First the Jews said Abraham was their father, and then later they self-righteously announced that God was their father. If only they realised who they were talking to. Now Jesus clearly outlined who he was. He said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself. God sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you are of your father, the devil. Now, if you have a desire to be good, say what is good and do what is good. It will reveal who you serve, who will be God. But if you are happy with being dishonest, telling lies instead of truth, and only interested in what you can get out of life, regardless of the rights of others, then it shows who you're serving, and that would not be God. Under all the pretense of piety, of these Jews to whom Jesus was speaking was an underlying selfishness. They did not want to know the truth. They did not want to humble themselves. They did not want to admit that they were only interested in themselves. They wanted no change. You've probably, like me, heard some people say something like this. Oh, it was good enough for my father, and it was good enough for my grandfather, so it's good enough for me. That's a very poor foundation on which to base your philosophical and religious views. It shows strong prejudice, and it reveals a certain stubbornness in not being willing to examine other ideas to see if they have any value. In the exchange between Jesus and the Jews, Jesus describes what the devil, Satan, is like. He said the devil was, firstly, a murderer from the beginning, b, that he does not stand for the truth, c, that there is no truth in him, d, that he's full of lies, e, that he's a liar, and F, that he is the father of lies. Do you realise that the very first lie told on planet Earth was by Satan? You shall not surely die, he announced to Adam and Eve. They were taken in by his lie, and sure enough, later they died. And unfortunately, People have swallowed that lie ever since, and it pervades society even in these modern times. Popular ideas are that at death, one turns into another life form, or goes straight up to heaven, or goes to hell, or to purgatory. Satan is a very successful liar, and he is responsible for twisting the truth into lies. 
and he has many agents, people, even those who are well-educated and well-respected. Some of them promote Satan's lies. In John chapter 8, verses 45 to 47, Jesus pointed out the obvious. He said, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Who of you or which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. The Jews had already used two strategies, but Jesus had not been silenced by them. So then they resorted to a third strategy, that is, insults and name-calling. In verse 48, the Jews asked an insulting question. Oh, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus replied, I do not have a demon, but I honour my Father. I do not seek my own glory. Back in those times, to call anyone a Samaritan was the ultimate form of insult. It was like calling someone a pig in our day and age. But Jesus did not react to their insults. He simply stated the truth. He never wavered from the truth. We're going to have a break here and go straight on afterwards.
Before the break, I mentioned how Jesus spoke. He didn't react to their insults. He simply stated the truth. And you know there's a good lesson here for us when we're in a conflict situation with someone else. Stick to the truth. Don't let angry emotions get in the way. Say what has to be said calmly and plainly and always keep to the truth. Truth is invincible. Truth has no shame. The Jews, as you could read in this passage in John chapter 8, announced that Jesus had a demon. Jesus went on to explain who he was and where he came from. But of course, they didn't want to believe him. Their prejudice was like a concrete wall in their minds. Remember the last of those strategies? It was about violence. In verse 59, the Bible records, Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. They would have resorted to violence, but were unable to kill Jesus by stoning him because he slipped away. Friends, this passage of scripture in John 8 is full of psychology, and it also explains that Jesus was not just a man, but God. He explained this to them, but their minds were closed. They refused to accept him as the Messiah, the one who came down from heaven in order to save people from their sins. There were other times when the Jews came to Jesus and asked him to perform for them. One such occasion is recorded in John 6, verse 30. They said to him, uh, What sign will you perform then, that we may believe you? What work will you do? Those Jews already had plenty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They had both seen and heard about the miracles he had done. They had heard the wisdom with which he spoke. They had seen the joy and peace in those who accepted him. They had read the prophecies about him. They had seen and heard his irrefutable logic. Yet, because of their prejudices, they continued to oppose him. What do you think those Jews would have done if Jesus had caused fire to come down from heaven and burn up some object in front of their eyes? Well, most probably they would have attributed it to some other cause and continued in their prejudiced disbelief. In the letter of the Apostle James, chapter 2, in the first three verses, James writes about prejudice. He said, My brothers, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality, that's with prejudice. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in the good place, and say to the poor man, 
you sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality or prejudice? Part of being human seems to involve making self-determinations of what is good or bad and what is safe or unsafe and what is desirable or undesirable and what we like to associate with and what we like to reject. Those determinations will affect our prejudice. Now here's a question. Is God prejudiced? John chapter 3 verse 16 says no. What it does say is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whosoever includes everybody the rich, the poor, the healthy, the sick, the disabled, the strong, the black, the white, the beautiful, the ugly, and so on. God does not discriminate. And further to that, Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 explains, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God has no favourites. Everyone, despite who or what they are, is freely offered his grace and salvation. God is not prejudiced. I want us to consider one last issue with regard to today's topic, and that is with regard to churches. Many years ago, when I was living in the country, some of us were willing to collect for charity by going around the district collecting money for the improvement of, of humanity in some overseas third world countries. The money was for improvement of health, education, for medical work, and so on. The charity was known as the Appeal for Missions. The appeal was organised and conducted by the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and most of the general public were willing to donate to support the work for which the appeal was targeted. On one occasion, my parents were travelling around the district by car, calling in at the various farmhouses, collecting for the appeal. All was going well, and people donated generously. At one point, suddenly, everybody seemed unwilling to donate. So my parents decided to discontinue collecting for the day and went home. What happened? It turns out that the old Lutheran pastor had heard that the appeal was being conducted and he went ahead of my parents telling his parishioners not to give anything. Why did he do that? Simply because he was prejudiced and had a biased opinion. It was probably also because a number of his church members who were dissatisfied with the teachings and practices of the Lutheran Church had left and became Adventists. Whatever opinions we may form, it is not wise to make up our minds 
based on little or poor information. My dear friends, I recognise that you listen to this program because you find merit in it. And by now you must be aware that I am a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I accept that my sins are forgiven through the merits of Jesus Christ and I am waiting for him to return to this earth to take back to heaven with him those who accept and honour him. Adventists are good Bible-believing people, law-abiding, neighbourly, temperate, clean-living, helpful and accepting. If you have an Adventist neighbour, you should have a very good neighbour. If you'd like to know more, why don't you phone the station or our producer, Nick, and request the little book, Your Friends, the Adventists. Don't let prejudice stand in the way. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time for today. So until next time, this is Len signing off and wishing you God's blessings and peace and joy. <laughs>